Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study again your word. We ask that your spirit will join us, fill us with your love and your truth, transform us to be lights for your kingdom, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing the lesson number 11 in the quarterly Feed My Sheep, First and Second Peter, and the title is False Teachers. And just before we get to the lesson, I received this email this week that came into our ministry. It says, hello, and thank you for writing the Remedy New Testament. I just recently came upon a copy at McKay's bookstore, and I don't know why I bought it, because I already own dozens of Bibles with access to many on eSword, but the title caught my attention, and something prompted me so profound that I had to get it, despite my usual dislike for paraphrases. I started reading it last night with First John and then the Gospel of John and couldn't put it down until falling asleep sometime around 3 this morning. I travel a lot, which brings me in contact with a lot of people, and only rarely are the doors closed to some kind of kingdom discussion, with me usually leaving them with a copy of a book I'm reading or one I feel specially prompted to give them. In fact, it's why I go to McKay's so often. It's to pick up books for specific people I plan to meet. And the Holy Spirit has never disappointed me yet or any of the recipients of the books, nor do I think he ever will. I was just recently asking what book will be Will I next be freely given so I can freely give? And that's when I came across the remedy. I would like to purchase in bulk for upcoming trips to New York, Missouri, and South Dakota. I also think your rendition to be the most profound rendering since the New English Bible, which I've been distributing for years thanks to McKay's. But they only had one copy of the remedy, therefore the email of of inquiry to you uh, to, to direct for more. I find your rendering so much more conducive to people I tend to um, somehow be placed in their paths. The homeless, the disenfranchised, addicts of all sorts, the sexually disoriented, prisoners, military who have some horrendous thing and drown themselves in coping escape mechanisms, inner city at-risk kids and dropouts, immigrants of all sorts, Native Americans on reservations, seniors who feel they have nothing left to contribute and waiting to die. You know, people in need of the great physician and waiting for someone to share the good news for a change. So we're doing lesson number 11 today, False Teachers, and if you look at the uh, Sabbath lesson, uh, the second paragraph reads, Satan launched a two-pronged attack. Certainly persecution from the outside, that is brute force and violence, was a powerful tool, but the church faced another threat, one perhaps even more dangerous than outside persecution. And what was the threat from inside? Just as the Jewish nation in the past had to deal with false prophets, the followers of Jesus in Peter's day had to deal with false teachers who would secretly introduce destructive heresies into the church itself. And even worse, Peter warned that many would follow these destructive ways. Does Christianity today continue to face problems of false teachings? Are there any that stand out in your mind that are particularly harmful? Many of you know that I am not a denominationalist, meaning I do not believe a person is saved based on their membership in a particular institution. If a person does believe that salvation results from belonging to a particular institution, would that be a true or false teaching? Or if a church taught you must belong to this institution and it's through this membership in this institution that you find salvation, is that a true or false teaching? Having said that, that I don't believe uh, that we're saved by denominational affiliation, I'm familiar with many teachings within Christian doctrinal teachings that make distinctions between denominations, and I thought I would share a a few with you today and ask you this question. 
Which of these are essential for being a true Christian? A genuine Christian, a person who is, that Jesus will say, the sheep, not the goats, when he comes again. So I'm going to read some doctrines to you, and, and, and we're going to go through, let's see, 15 of them, really quick. And you think, which ones would make somebody, if they believe these, that makes them a Christian or not? First one, the scriptures are inspired by God. Second, there is one true God who exists in triune perfection of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the divine member of the Godhead who was identified as God's Son and who became human, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again to life, and ascended to heaven. God is the creator of the world. Uh, God is the creator, and the world was created in seven literal days, and God rested on the seventh day, creating the Sabbath as a gift for human beings. Life did not evolve on its own. Five, human beings were created in God's image with their own unique individuality and freedom to make their own choices. There is a conflict between God and Satan, waging in the minds of intelligent beings over who to trust. Jesus became human, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross for the purpose of defeating Satan, saving humankind, and securing the unfallen universe. God's work via the Holy Spirit, God works via the Holy Spirit to heal and transform every human being who will let him. Those who are transformed by the Holy Spirit have immersed their hearts in God's love and truth, and when able, give public witness with the ritual of water baptism. Those who trust God and are united in love are known as God's church, and they work together to reach other people with God's healing grace. The Holy Spirit enables those who trust God to fill roles by providing abilities or gifts for the fulfillment of their calling. God is sovereign and his laws are unchangeable. Three more. Jesus is in heaven directing all the agencies at his disposal to defeat evil, Satan, and to save and heal all who let him. The wages or results of unhealed sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life and an earth made new. And then the last of the 15 that I chose, Jesus is coming again soon in the clouds of heaven, visibly to resurrect the righteous dead and translate the righteous living to heaven. The wicked will die the first death and the earth will be barren for a thousand years, followed by the resurrection of the wicked, the final judgment and the eradication of all sin, pain and death itself. And then the universe will be cleansed and the earth made new. Now, if a person believes all of these things that I just read, would that make them a Christian? No. I heard some no's. Good choice. Because isn't it true that Satan and all of his fallen angels believe every one of those things? They do. Every, if you go down every one of those, Satan and his angels believe every one of those to be true. That doesn't mean they live it, they believe it. Yes. So isn't it true that an intelligent being can believe every one of these beliefs to be true and be a devil? God's worst enemy. So does believing such things make one a Christian? What, there's a lie uh, in, in the questions, this idea, there's a lie under, underpinning the questions. And it's a lie that we are made Christians by attestation to a certain set of beliefs or joining a particular organization. That is what makes us a Christian. That's a lie. You can attest to every one of those things and still not be a Christian. True or false? That's right. So, what is it then that makes somebody a true Christian, a follower of Jesus? Their actions. 
their actions to reveal. They love others. So Jesus himself said this in John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you're baptized by immersion. No, it doesn't say that. What's it say? If you love one another. True Christian is the one who has a heart change from selfishness to Christ-like love for God and other people. That's true Christianity. And what is necessary for a person to have a heart change to love? What is the thing, the, the hurdle, what is it, the, the event that occurs that causes that change to happen? Opening your heart, yes, okay, and inviting in the Holy Spirit, right? And what is it that causes a person to open their heart? Their understanding of God, our love, the, remember, Yes, yes, exactly. Coming to trust God, which is based on? His love. Knowing Him. So John seventeen three, life eternal is? That you know me. Know Him. And as we come to know Him as He really is, as revealed in Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that the distortions about God are dispelled. We come to see Him as a being of consummate love, grace, goodness, truth, love, a being we can trust and we open the heart. And that is then what results in the Spirit coming in and changing our hearts from fear and selfishness to love and trust. So it all comes back to a knowledge of God. So what would then prevent people from having this knowledge of God? Can you see we're talking about false teachers? And the thing, within, could, could there be people who preach Jesus every week, but preach every week in such a way that they actually obstruct people from knowing God? Absolutely. This idea about salvation belonging to a certain sect, believing a certain creed, attestation to a certain set of fundamental beliefs, uh, observing certain rituals, uh, partaking in certain um, uh, endeavors, uh, uh, that these things are what make a person Christian, not a changed heart. And much of religion promotes this idea that you have to have the right doctrinal definitions, that you have to have the right way you perform the rituals, that you have to actually partake in the right rituals. And if you don't do that, then, then you're not saved. And what underlines all of the, underpins all of that? The core lie, in my view, is the false law lie. That God's law functions like humans. You know, God is creator. He makes space, time, energy, matter, life itself. His laws are the protocols reality are built upon. Laws of health, laws of physics, and laws that govern our minds and our relationships. How life is constructed to work. Deviations from those are destructive. Harmony is health and healing. But we can't make, you and I can't make space, time, energy, matter, life. We can't do that. So what do we do? We make up rules and then we threaten to punish people who break our rules. That's how we function. Much of Christianity is bought into the notion that God runs his universe like that. Because it looks so right to us. It looks so just. And we teach this idea of God's righteousness or his justice. is He has a perfect law and he imposes perfect punishments on those who break the law. And it becomes very judicial. Well, sometimes, too, if you feel like the only way you can know Jesus is to go through a church or through a preacher, whereas you don't need that. And therefore, with this false law construct, we begin creating doctrines that function, how? To hide us from God or to protect us from God. Think about how the doctrines you hold. So here's some. I need an intercessor between me and God to plead my case to God and persuade him not to punish me for my sins. In Catholicism, it's not only Jesus, but Mary and the saints who plead to God and the priests who, to whom sins are confessed because God couldn't tolerate us if there wasn't someone between us and him. 
In Protestantism, it is Jesus who is our advocate pleading his blood or merits to the Father, reminding the Father that he has paid the price for our sins so the Father doesn't punish us. Do you notice the function? In both, both views, they have the same God that is the source of inflicted pain and punishment, and we have somebody there between us to protect us. How about this? I need someone to hide my sins from God. In Catholicism, again, it's Jesus marrying the saints who hide our sins by, from God by covering them with the blood of Jesus. When we partake the Mass, Jesus then applies his sacrifices to erase the sins from the records and keeps God from seeing, seeing it and acting his, his judicial self to punish. In Protestantism, it is Jesus applying his blood to our record books to erase the record of sins or covering us with the robe of his righteousness, which is taught that his perfect sinlessness gets recorded in our record books of heaven. So when the record books are open, there's no record of sin that God would be required to punish us for. Again, notice, both functionally erasing or hiding the the, the relevant facts of our history from God. And then I need someone to pay my debt. In Catholicism, it's Jesus along with our works and penances and indulgences and other activities combined that pay our debt to the Father so he won't punish. In Protestantism, it's Jesus who all sins, past, present, and future, were placed on Christ at the cross, and God punished him at the cross, and so all sins have been paid for in Jesus. Do you see how these doctrines are functioning? To hide or protect us. Why do we need that? Because we believe that God's law functions no different and justice requires punishment. It's not fair. If you break a rule, their punishment needs to be inflicted. And so this is how many people think. And thus they're hiding from God rather than being reconciled to him. This is false teaching. It's deeply embedded. We'll see it in our quarterly in this week's lesson in just a moment. It also leads to concern that salvation is based on having the right doctrinal beliefs. Thus if we collect the right beliefs, swear the right allegiances, set up the right systems, partake the right rituals, doing it in the right legal way, because it's prescribed, and we can't break that. If we, we don't do it just right, then, then it's bad. So this leads to centuries of good Christian people arguing back and forth over doctrines. What day to worship on? What method of baptism? Eternal or limited hell? Trinity or no Trinity? Why did Jesus have to die? The atonement views. Are we saved by knowing the right answers to these questions? It is a lie that you have to have the right doctrines to be saved. It's a lie. What? Yes, comment. In Isaiah 30.15, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. And so what does it mean? You've read, you've read the scripture. Okay, now what does that mean? Well, it's showing you, I think, the four basic elements of what attitude would be to be saved would be a, a trust in God, a rest. Read it again. Well, it says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. So this is how the level four and below people hear this. I've done something bad. I have to confess my sin to God, which I do, and I repent of my sin, and then the legal payment that Jesus has made is applied to my account, and I trust him as my advocate to plead to the Father in my behalf so that God won't punish me for my sin. I'm, rest, I'm repenting and I'm trusting. Wrong. Wrong. They're still living in fear of God. They're not reconciled. They need someone to hide him and protect him. Uh, the scriptures exactly. I know you don't, but the, I'm, I'm pointing out that you can read the very same scripture 
and have your mind darkened by it if you come with a presupposition that God's law functions like human law. What does repentance mean if God's law works like our law? It means something different than if God is creator and we're worshiping him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea. And we understand God's law is, is design law and human beings in sin are deviant from the, the law. We are, are dead, terminal in our trespasses and sin that we need something done to renew. Re, we need to be reborn, recreated, regenerated. Then repentance is a turning away from the infection of selfishness, a trust in the Savior who... The Spirit comes and takes all that Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get a new heart and right spirit. Something transformational happens within. This is a completely different understanding than the legal view. And I know that's what you meant, but I was just pointing out that you can read that and people can hear it completely differently. So, the right way, as I understand, to approach doctrine, and I think there's a place for doctrine, But if you approach it with a legal mentality first, then you end up arguing over the definitions. The better approach, in my view, to doctrine is, okay, if this is true in this way, what kind of a being would God be? What kind of a being would he be? How would he run his universe? What kind of character is this? Is it true that Jesus functioned this way? Yes. Pardon? Um, I'm on Sabbath lesson. Mm -hmm. Now we're moving to Sunday's lesson. (laughs) Okay, um, and then the lesson asks us to read portions of Second Peter 2, and I thought this is a, a, a chapter that has some very difficult things for people to understand, so I thought we'd read it first out of the NIV and ask some questions as we go along through sections of it, the whole chapter, and then we'll look at it through the remedy and see what you think. So this is uh, NIV, Second Peter chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there were... a There will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Pause. While it is absolutely true, there have been and will be people who deny that Jesus is Lord, do the devils, the demons, deny Jesus is Lord? Do you see in the New Testament when the demon-possessed person talk, we know who you are, thou holy one of God? Were they denying Jesus was the Holy One of God? They weren't denying that. Verse 2. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Into disrepute. Repute. Disrepute. What are the shameful ways? Is a shameful way a way that embraces truth or a way that denies truth? So would a shameful way be a way that is the way of lies and distortion? And a way of love or a way of selfishness? Selfishness. Okay. So, what happens when you deny the truth? What kind of beliefs do you end up with if you reject truth? False teachings. False teachings. And, and, in, and in religious views, oftentimes we call those superstitions. Fantasy. Magical thinking. So, shameful ways, as I see this, would be denying love and teaching false ideas that infect the mind. Promoting selfishness. And, there, and notice the next verse. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has been long hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. What does that mean? An infliction or a consequence? Which law lends? Next verse. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in the gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Pause. Are these words easy to understand for you? Do they incite fear or love? Fear. What law lens are you reading or hearing them through? What do they actually mean in practical application? How things actually work in real life? What is God actually doing? What action is God taking from his throne? Is the punishment an infliction they would not otherwise receive if God had anger management classes? Or is their suffering something that is inherent in sin? Think that through as we go on. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Think through. What's that saying? How do you hear it? Paid back because there's a judicial magistrate. God is keeping score and he can be, keep better account and he can get better punishment upon him in the end. So he's a tit for a tat all the way down through time. Is that what's going on here or something else? Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a, and a cursed brood. Accursed by who? By what? what? What's the curse? They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. What was the straight way that he left? He left a straight way. What was that way that he left? These men are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. Blackness darkens, blackest darkness is reserved for them. What does this mean? Reserved by whom? What is the cause of the darkness? For they... For they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to what has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Why would they be worse? What makes it worse? It would be better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of the Proverbs, of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Do you see in this passage the law of love? The principles of liberty. Do you see it? Do you see these verses... 
And do you read them through the imposed law lens, thinking how a human system of government works? You see, when we read scripture, there's what's said, and there's what we read into it. For instance, in Genesis, after the fall, there's a passage where God says that he gave them skins as a covering. And many read into that. He killed the first animals and gave them the skins. He never says anything about killing animals in the scripture. Just says he gave them skins as a covering. You have to read in. Is God killing to do this? Or is it easier to make a skin than it is to make a living being? I mean, which is easier? Okay, so which, way, which lens you look through? People read things in. What is the preconceived idea as you read these words? So now I'm going to read these same passages from the remedy, see? And the remedy is purposeful in its intent to try to understand these things through God as the designer and the creator, rather than imperialism. In the past, among God's people, there are those who claim to speak for God and bring his remedy. But they did not speak for God at all, and they brought a false remedy. Likewise, there will be people among you who claim to teach God's truth and have God's remedy, but they will teach lies. They will subtly introduce false remedies, destructive doctrines purported to heal, but actually incite fear, shut down thinking, and damage the mind. They will even deny the sovereign Lord who procured the remedy, thus bringing rapid deterioration and destruction upon themselves. Do you see design law and how that's worded? What happens to a person who's sick and refuses remedy? Do they get better or do they get worse? So why does the rapid deterioration come to those who teach lies about God, which is what Peter is saying. The deterioration comes not as an infliction. Their condition gets worse because without Christ, sin takes deeper and deeper control and destroys more and more of the heart and character and the mind. There will be a large number of people who embrace their corrupt ways while calling themselves Christians, thus causing the remedy to be considered worthless. Why would that be true? Have we seen in time that Christianity took upon itself the imperialistic view of God's law and they went out to inflict punishment upon people who didn't worship the way they worshiped? They went to war in the Crusades. They had the Inquisition. Uh, they just did horrible things by the infliction of coercive pressure on those who viewed things differently. And did that bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into a better worldview or into disrepute? And people didn't trust it. This is what he's saying. There will be large numbers of people... Oh, just read that one. In their eagerness for power, fame, and wealth, these false teachers will mislead you with theories and doctrines they have made up on their own. Because of this, their terminal condition only worsens, and their ultimate destruction is unavoidable. Why? Do you again see the design law in here? Is God, in this view, to be feared? Or is he to be cherished and trusted because he's providing remedy that will heal us but if we reject it he he leaves us free to reap what we sow for god did not suspend reality to let the angels avoid the consequences of their deviation from his design for life but he expelled them from his presence suspending them in utter darkness for the day they reap the full result of unremedied sin what is this saying what does the bible teach about god's presence 1 Timothy 6.16, God lives in unapproachable light. Jesus is the light that lightens all men. God is the source of all light and truth. Is this Peter speaking only about physical light, or is he speaking about the light of truth that emanates from God? So why would the angels be suspended in darkness? Because what have they done? They've rejected the light of truth, which is found in Jesus Christ and reveals the truth about God and his character and his methods, and they don't like it. They've rejected it. They said no to it. So they're suspended out of God's presence in what? Darkness. 
This isn't an infliction. If you refuse truth, the only thing left for your mind to rest upon are lies. That's all that's left on any subject. Outside today, if we have a clear sky, the sky is blue, and we could take an instrument and measure the wavelength of light being refracted, and I can give you in nanometers that that color blue is this particular wavelength, and you are still free to say, I don't believe that. I reject that. I think it's orange. Well, it doesn't matter what you think. If you reject the truth of what that is, pick anything else. Every other color you pick is wrong. Okay? Once you reject the truth, which these angels did, the only thing left for them is darkness. God did not allow the gangrenous, yes, God did not allow the gangrenous ancient world to completely cut itself off from him, but brought the flood to excise the necrosis and save Noah, a teacher of the remedy, and seven others. He diagnosed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah as beyond healing, and in mercy he cauterized those festering lesions to ash, making it clear that the unhealed will not be made to suffer eternally, but, but the torment of sin will mercifully be ended. Is that how you read it when you heard it? Or did you read it as God is punishing them for this? What do we hear happening? Why did the flood come? Punishment or, or mercy? God is mercifully keeping open. Could the human race be saved without Jesus Christ coming to earth after Adam's sin? Was Satan sitting back idly, just letting things unfold? Or was he actively working to stop God's plan? Wasn't he active? And how was he working to stop God's plan? Would Jesus have been born to a woman with a character like Jezebel? Would God force a woman against her will to be the mother of Jesus? So if, if Satan gave every heart on, on earth to harden against God, the avenue through which the Messiah would need to be incarnate and born would be closed. You say, well, that's impossible. How many righteous men were on the earth at the time of the flood, according to Scripture? One. One righteous man left. Think about it. All, who knows how many millions were on the earth at the time, but there's only one left at that time that was still willing to work with God. And how long does God wait? Now, if he doesn't act, the entire species human is gone, lost forever. His actions were, put people in the grave, there's going to be a resurrection. That's only sleep, suspended animation, keeping open the avenue for Messiah to come. Israel, without Sodom, Gomorrah, and the five other cities, there were seven cities, I believe, did Israel still almost fail to make it through to the time of Christ? Did they almost get seduced by the pagan ways around them? So, is it possible that God cauterized, took out of play Sodom, Gomorrah, and the five cities. That was the minimum number he could take knowing that Israel would make it through. Without that, they would have been consumed by the corruption around them. So again, God is not punishing. He's acting. All right, let's keep going. And by the way, what do doctors do with sick patients? Is that how you see this? Doctors cauterize lesions all the time, don't they? They use fire to burn things. You ever been to a dermatologist with a a skin cancer? What's he do? He sometimes uses fire to burn it. Yes. And God delivered Lot, a man who partook the remedy and was tormented by the disgusting lives of those living in violation of God's design. For it was torture to that man with a healed mind and a sensitive heart to live day after day among such vileness and see and hear such vulgarity. Do you see where Lot's torment was originating? Was it inflicted torment? Was God tormenting him? No, it was torment. And, and anybody who's ever loved someone and had that person go off into self-destructive living, has experienced torment of heart. 
as they abuse themselves and hurt themselves and won't listen to reason. Isn't it torment to watch? Yes. If God can do all this, he also knows how to rescue the afflicted the, from affliction the godly, those who have partaken the remedy, while preserving until the day everyone is accurately diagnosed the ungodly. Pause. Do you see judgment and diagnosis differently? When a doctor diagnoses, what is that? Isn't he making a judgment about the actual condition of the situation for him? God's judgment in the end time. What is it? A judicial finding based on rules and legal maneuvering and, and legal payments? Or is it a judgment about the actual condition of the hearts and minds of all beings? You have been healed and restored. My laws again written in your heart and mind. You've partaken of Christ and have the mind of Christ. You've been set right in the inner man. Or not, you've hardened against me. You prefer the ways of, of selfishness and lies. Is his, is, his diagno- is his judgment simply and only a diagnosis? Well, there's biblical examples. Hosea, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. That's a judgment. Or Revelation, let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. That's a judgment of their condition. Diagnose. The ungodly, those who by refusing the remedy suffer in persistent sin. And especially those whose minds are controlled by selfishness and who are so self-centered that they despise any authority, oversight, or redirection. They are presumptuous, pompous, and arrogant. They are so self-absorbed that they have no respect for heavenly beings, but instead they denigrate them. Yet even angels who are mightier and stronger than these false teachers do not slander such beings in the presence of God, the source of all truth. These people speak foolishly about things they don't even comprehend. They are like unthinking animals, driven by fear, rage, and lust. They are caught up in their own destructive choices, and like unthinking beasts, they will also perish. They will reap what they have sown, receiving as their wages the harmful results of living outside God's design. Their idea of health and happiness is to violate trust, stay faithful to no one, and openly indulge the basest passions. They are festering lesions of decay, reveling in their orgies. These, they constantly backstab, betray, and exploit. They never stop violating God's design for life, the law of love, and instead constantly promote selfishness. They seduce the immature and unstable. They are experts in taking for themselves regardless of how it hurts others. They are unhealed, dying under the curse of sin. They have chosen to leave the design protocols for life and have embraced the methods of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the rewards procured by exploiting others. But a donkey had more sense than Balaam and told him he was wrong. With the voice of a man, the donkey spoke and stopped the prophets in sane action. These people have nothing to offer. They are like dried up springs, having no more substance than a vapor trail in the sky. Eternal darkness is awaiting them. Why is eternal darkness waiting them? What resolves through people who separate themselves from the source of light, life, truth, love? What's left there? Yeah, this isn't an infliction. This is a consequence that happens for those who cut themselves off from the channel of blessing. And I'll let you read the rest. There's a few verses left in that on your own. The lesson asks, how can we protect ourselves from false teaching? What method do you use? So many voices, so many people, so many churches, so many dynamic and and inspirational speakers, so many Bible commentaries, so many books on Christianity. How do you know which one's telling the truth? Do you have a method? You know what method we offer? The integrative evidence-based approach, which requires scripture to harmonize with God's design laws and science and nature and real life experience, how reality works. The three threads that God in scripture 
told us all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Romans chapter 1, God's divine nature seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse and taste and see that the Lord is good. Check me out. Experience me. If you have an interpretation of scripture, a verse that is out of harmony with how nature and science works, testable, reproducible laws that the creator built into reality, there's something wrong with that. If real life doesn't work that way, there's something wrong. Monday's lesson, first paragraph. In the strongest possible language, Peter was, given, was giving his readers a warning against the dangers of false teachers. 2 Peter 2, 18-21, he warned that these false teachers, while promising liberty and freedom, would actually lead people into bondage. Can you think of any doctrines that promise freedom today, but actually enslave people instead? I'm going to give you one, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to walk you through the mental enslavement that comes from believing this doctrine. This doctrine is called penal substitution theology. Penal substitution theology, it promises freedom. How? Freedom from punishment of sin. All sins were placed on Jesus. He paid that penalty. You accept it. That Then you have legal declaration that your sins have been paid and you're declared to be righteous even though you're not. So what does it deliver from? It delivers from the fear of punishment of sin, of uh, sins that are unrepented of. But it teaches us to fear God because in the same doctrine, what will happen if you have a sin that you're not repented of? God will be required by justice to punish. And so it sets up this dynamic where you live in fear. And this is, you will hear people talk like this. Oh no, I had my TV on Friday afternoon, was talking on the phone and forgot to turn it off before sunset. What happens if I forget to confess that? Will God have to punish me? Oh no, uh, in a meeting at work, I took a paperclip off a bundle of papers and put it in my pocket and then brought it home. Did I steal from my employer? Thou shalt not steal, the Bible says. I might have stolen. I might have done that before and forgot. That might be in my record book in heaven. God might have to punish me for that because I forgot to confess it. Oh, I'm having a picnic lunch on Sabbath afternoon and some, and some of my friends brought a Frisbee and are starting to throw. Is it okay to throw a Frisbee on Sabbath? Will it be sin? What about a baseball? What about a basketball? What about hitting a tennis ball? Well, you know, that's not legal because over at the college courts over here, it says no tennis on Sabbath. That would be sin. We don't know about the Frisbee. I didn't, see a, I didn't see a rule on that one yet. What about not staying after church in the lobby to visit lest someone speak about something not holy? We hear somebody talking about the most recent football game in the lobby. Have, 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 I, have I contaminated my spirit temple? I must run out and not socialize because somebody might talk about something that's not Sabbath approved. Every one of these, by the way, I know real people who live this way. I'm not making these up. These are real people. This is what I, heard. I hear this stuff. This is where I learn this stuff. I haven't taken communion in three years. Am I still saved or am I in trouble with God? What if I get into an argument and impossibly curse the person in the argument and then I step out in front of a car and get killed, but I didn't confess my cursing? Will I be lost? I see some people laughing. Hey, that was me before this class. <laughs> this is how many, this is the false, they promise freedom, but they enslave people. But they live in, in fear, constant fear. Yes. Like I told you, just experiencing time with my family. They still believe like this, and there's no change in them. I don't know. Prove anything, whatever. There's no change in them. It's not our job to change. It's our job to be lights to the world and plant seeds of truth. The Holy Spirit fertilizes the truth and convicts the heart. It's not our job to change. We want to present the truth in love and let the Holy Spirit bring conviction. Yeah, I'll have that. Okay. 
So uh, I did a rolling stop at the stop sign. It didn't come to a complete stop. Is that sin? Do I need to confess disobeying the laws? It wasn't an immoral law. We're supposed to obey the laws. If they're not immoral laws, did I, did I just commit sin? Do I need to confess? What happens if I don't? Will that be on my record book? Will I have to be punished? I see people beside the road hold, holding signs, uh, homeless, uh, will work for food. Should I give them a donation? But what if they're going to use it for drugs? Do, am I hurting them? What's, what's the action? Am I selfish if I don't? I'm tormented all afternoon. I can't have peace. I, I, I might have... You think I'm making this stuff up? Yes. Do you see the imposed law system creates entire lines of thinking, belief systems that darken the mind, incite fear, enslave with legalistic and ritualistic behaviors, steal joy, and cause one to constantly look at themselves rather than rejoice in their love and admiration for God and Jesus Christ. It's a self-focused religion. And it's a lie. It's exactly what Peter's talking about. These teachers come along and they enslave people by promising freedom. Yes. White talks about the reverence of the sanctuary. How when we go in, we should be reverent. So what if somebody consistently does this? Goes in and just talks about things unspiritual, unreligious all the time. I mean, not once in a while or something. What if people consistently do this kind of stuff? So I'd like to see the quote, to see the context, to see what she's addressing. But when you say the sanctuary, you're not talking the heavenly sanctuary. You're talking about church building. Yes. Teaching children reverence and stuff in church, you don't think that's... Rather than celebration in church. Rather than raising your hands, clapping. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about teaching children to be sitting still and be quiet. Because, and what's the reason for the reverence and quiet? What's the reason? Because you're in the presence of God. So you're in the presence of God. So I can see this. At the second coming, the skies unfold, the angels, thousands of them, the, the graves are opening, the dead are rising, and an Adventist is going, shh, be reverent. You're in the presence of God. You know what I'm talking about. You've been in churches before where, the, where people, not just children, people are so irreverent. I'm not talking about celebrating, raising their hands in praise or whatever. I'm talking about just nothing spiritual about what they're See, doing. I'm pointing, I was pointing out this idea that we, we, we hurt children with. We drive them away from church and we do this. By teaching reverence? By teaching them a false reverence. Real reverence is admiration and awe because of the beauty of the person that we understand God to be. That's real reverence. This false reverence is reverence for a building. That's what it's reverence for. And it becomes judicial and it becomes fear-inducing. I'm afraid I'll get punished if I... What we want to show them is that God is so beautiful and so awesome that we are privileged to come together as body of believers and share in his love. And it overwhelms us in awe. I would encourage you to take a poll of people who are past adolescents and ask them the impact of this fear-induced reverence. Be reverent. Shh. Or I'm going to take you out and spank you. Reminds me of the story I heard an evangelist tell about, about a little boy up front with his mother being very disruptive, very disruptive during the, during the program while he was speaking. And finally, the mother picked the boy up and marched to the back of the church to, you know, take care of business. And, and as her hand hit the back door and the boy was on the shoulder looking back this way, he shouted, pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, what a... Disrespect that um, is gets in the way of your 
thinking about awesome God and so on. Yes. But I think that's probably more where she's in. You know. I agree. And, and so how do you, know, I agree. There's, do we want, we want church simply to be another place we get together and play football, watch the game, have a match, do worldly stuff that doesn't elevate our mind to a higher reality? Do we want church to be that? We do not. So there's absolutely a place. And so the idea behind, the good motive behind what I think has been destructive to a lot of people has been we want to elevate your minds to see a larger reality away from the things of the world that keep you so trivialized in everything you're doing. I think that's the right motive about reverence and about quiet. Give time to Holy Spirit to work in the still small voice in your heart and so forth. I think there's a place for that, absolutely. And we need to teach that. But we need to teach the reason why we do it. Why? Be still and know that I am God. Be quiet and listen to my voice. We're coming and teach them, hey, you know what? The creator is going to be here if we're quiet and listen. You listen? See if you can hear him speak to you here today. See, that's a reason rather than this is church. And in church, Sister White said, we must be reverent. So we can't run. We can't laugh. You shouldn't smile and enjoy yourself while you're here. I mean, this is how sometimes it comes across to children. Okay? And it sends a different picture, doesn't it? So I think you absolutely have a truth that we need to, I think, repackage to teach what genuine reverence is, which is a, a quietness in the soul reaching out for a connection with God. Isn't that what true reverence is? Yes. But likely, those children are bathed in that kind of mistreatment in all sorts of different situations through the week. I, I, I agree. By the time they've developed the rebellious attitude. Because you have to treat them with respect and love as well. And when... That's, they live in that kind of environment, they react differently to you. And they may goof, make a mistake and have to be corrected, but they don't perceive that correction as being unjust and mean. Right, and so if you think about parents trying to teach something that the parents actually understand a higher reason for, and I think most of the problem with church is parents have never really thought of the higher reasons. But the example of the toothbrushing. Parents will often discipline kids who don't brush their teeth. But the parents are simultaneously educating and teaching there's a higher reason for doing it than I said so. Then you'll get punished. That you won't get your bedtime story. There's a higher reason. Your teeth will decay. You'll have cavities. I don't want you to suffer. It's for your good that I'm doing this. There's all, and even though the child at a certain age may not get that, may not comprehend, they're hearing. It's woven in their whole upbringing. And at some point, they start cognating and realize, my mother does this because she loves me. My daddy does this because he loves me and he wants what's best for me and at some point the consequences are removed and they're left free to uh, internalize and do that or not when it comes to religious things it's hardly ever this way it's almost always rules oriented because we have operated under a system that it is rules god has rules you must pay the rules if you don't pay the rules there's a there's a recording angel that follows you everywhere your guardian angel stops at the theater door but your recording angel goes in to record your sins your guardian angel won't be there to help you in trouble however though okay You, you know how many got that story Okay? If you go certain places, your guardian angel lets you go. No! Guardian angel goes with you everywhere. Okay? Seeking to help you. God is always working for your good. But we got this ledger that we have to now keep accounting of. I got something bad in my book. How do I get it out? Well, you got to confess and the blood goes and pay. It's all legal and it's very, and at some point they go, this is ridiculous. You can never keep all the, that's right. That's why we have then the doctrine of the cheap grace. All the sins, past, present, and future place on the Christ and I accept it as my savior. I've been saved. I don't have to worry about keeping any rules anymore because it's all done. I'm saved. Can't be lost. And it goes to that place. Because they're so tired of the oppression. Or they throw God off altogether and go, I don't believe in this God. There is no God. Evolution is the way things work. And this is what happens. We have a better message than all of that. 
We have a message of a, God, of a God who created reality and his laws are how reality actually works and breaking them are destructive to us like the laws of health that it makes such good sense to seek to, to have a relation with him and live in harmony with how he built reality, including relationships to work. It is so much healthier and happier to have a monogamous marriage relationship with loyalty and love to your spouse than cheating on your spouse. Even if you don't get caught. Inside yourself, your conscience is seared, you've increased anxiety, your, um, your ability to trust others are compromised because you see others through the lens of your own untrustworthiness and so you distrust people. Um, you're, you're constantly worried. Uh, uh, you're, you're, you know, your spouse calls you on the phone and you're, oh, did they find something? Uh, it just steals all your peace and joy from you, even if you're not caught. It's so much healthier to live in harmony with God's design. Wednesday's lesson First paragraph, it says, uh, many people have observed that Jude 4 through 19 largely repeats the message of Second Peter, chapter 2. Whenever scripture repeats a message, we should be aware that God wants to convey something important. In these similar passages, Peter and Jude take great lengths to notify of an important truth. God is in control of the destiny of the wicked. Both Peter and Jude leave us with no doubt that God is closely monitoring evil. Whether unrighteous humanity or fallen angels, God has taken special note of their evil and has planned their punishment on the day of judgment. Warms my heart. First off, do you see a lie embedded in here anywhere? Is there a lie in here? What lie do you see in this? God is the one that punishes. Okay, God is the one that inflicts punishment. What else? There's a lie before that one. How about God is in control of the destinies of the wicked? What does that mean to you? Does God determine the outcome and the destinies of the lives of the wicked? Is it God's choice whether the wicked are saved or lost? Is it God's choice that determines their punishment? This is commonly taught. It absolutely is. That he, he, they choose to be saved or lost, but then God, as the judge, chooses their punishment. That's not true either. That's not how reality works. Um, this is, again, evidence. This is evidence. The fact that this isn't here is evidence that the false law construct has infected the people who wrote this quarterly. They're operating on that landscape. That landscape's wrong. Do you want another metaphor from Scripture for the false law construct? It's the wine of Babylon. In Revelation, that all the world is intoxicated on. All religions of the world, even those who reject God, why are they rejecting God? Because they have reacted to the wine of Babylon. We have an arbitrary God who sets up rules and he'll torment you in hell if you don't keep his rules and he's going to sit in judgment and, and people go, that think, that, well, that doesn't make sense. I reject that. They're reacting to the wine of Babylon. This is the imperialistic law construct. And it's wrong. And it's wrong. What determines the destiny of the wicked is not the choice of God, but the choice of the wicked. Their refusal to accept healing, their persistence in evil changes them, warps them, hardens them, builds up a life history of evil that one day they will face. They will face their own history and all the things that they've caused when they come in the presence of unveiled truth. Their lies and distortions can't hide them. And if you've dealt with people who haven't come to repentance and they live a wicked life, try to present truth to them. Just on your human level of truth, which is so much inferior to infinite truth, and you just try to confront them with some truth and see their reaction. They'll get angry. They'll get upset. They'll deny. They'll attack you. They'll distort. They'll, they'll uh, project. They'll rationalize. They'll blame someone else. They don't, and they will ultimately, if, you, if you're really good, and I'm pretty good at this, not, not the ultimate worship, but I'm pretty good at showing people stuff, they won't want to be in your presence. They'll avoid you. 
If they know you're going to call them to account and have them look in the mirror at themselves, they don't want to look in the mirror at themselves. This is why Jesus said those in darkness don't want to come into the light, lest their evil deeds be exposed. And so when they come into the unveiled truth and love, God's presence in the future, they can't avoid. Their lies don't work. Their denial doesn't work. Their distortion, they have full awareness of who they are and what they've done. And it causes them agony and torment of soul and mind. So I want to read to you um, from a Bible commentary book called Hard Sayings of the Bible, printed by InterVarsity Press. Their description of what God's wrath is in Romans 1. This is a non-Adventist book, but it shows you that truth is not restricted to denominations. Okay, this is a very well, well done thing. And see how many of you can think of an Ellen White quote that says the exact same thing as I'm reading this. This is on page 542, 542 and 43. In some sense, God's wrath is built into the very structure of created reality. In rejecting God's structure and establishing our own, in violating God's intention for the creation and substituting our own intention, we cause our own disintegration. The human condition which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18-32 is not something caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, where heaven is a typical Jewish substitute for, the, for God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement, which results when God's will, built into the created order, is violated. Since the created order has its origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in the fact that the rejection of God's truth, that is, the truth about God's nature and will, leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of God's intended sexuality, and and relational moral brokenness. The expression God gave them over or handed them over, which appears three times in the passage, supports the idea that the sinful perversion of human existence, though resulting from human decisions, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which we, in freedom, bring upon ourselves. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinfulness or good deeds cannot be maintained. God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from his life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. That's Bible truth right there. That is well said and well stated. Can anyone think of an Ellen White quote that says the same thing? Second, Selected Messages 235, right? Oh, what were you thinking? Desire of Atheists, it is finished at the end of the chapter, talks about how God's glory comes out to the people and it says that his light is like a, like a consuming fire. Yes. It's an indication that it's, um, that it's just the, the glory of God, his presence, is what um, consumes the sinner and not, not the anger and wrath. So, and, and that's exactly describing functionally what, how it works. In second, in second Selected Messages 235, she says, We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for him to sin again, and separates himself from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. That's exactly what they said. She said it 100 years before, but that's the same thing. It's natural design law. If you separate yourself from oxygen, the sure result is ruin and death. If you transgress design law, you're out of harmony with how God built life, and the only result of that is ruin and death. In uh, Matthew 7, I, I like this because in this class I've come to look at it differently. It says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
you know, uh, I've come to look at it as the beginning of this opening your heart to God and allowing him to pour in the truth so you see yourself before the end of time. So you get a kind of measured doses of self-awareness be brought to you. Um, as you judge that God is truthful and God is faithful and he's on your side and he's got the remedy for you, as you judge that about God, that's ultimately what judges you, is your judgment of God. This is exactly right, and it's also an evidence of design law. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good of the good stored of him, and the evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him. The musician brings forth music. The mathematician brings forth math. In other words, your action and conduct reveals the quality of your character and heart. So if you're judging others judicially, uh, punitively, harshly, you're simply revealing your own character, and thus you will be diagnosed that way. Don't judge others, because how you judge others is how you'll be diagnosed. That's what that's saying. It's just design law. Thursday's lesson, I'm going to jump out of Wednesday because there's a point in Thursday I want to get to. First paragraph, it's uh, talking about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, talking about Abraham uh, and and God speaking to Abraham. And it says, um, later, when God warned Abraham that he was planning to destroy Sodom, Abraham negotiated an agreement with God that God would not destroy if ten righteous people were there. Hopefully your mind went, wait a second. Negotiated an agreement? Hmm. Did, did God uh, go to Abraham unaware of how Abraham was going to respond when he told him? I had no idea how, how Abraham was going to take this. He, he might have said, God said it, I believe that settles it. Let's go do it, Lord. Or did God foreknow that Abraham was going to say exactly what Abraham said? Was this a negotiation? No. Did God respond to Abraham's request uh, to not destroy for 50, 40, and so on it was his response lacking the knowledge of how many people were actually still in Sodom. The righteous in Sodom. He didn't know. Uh, okay, I'll do that, but now let's go find out how many are there. Or did he know when he was saying 50, 40, 30, 10, did he still know how many righteous were in Sodom? Was this a negotiation? Did the conversation that Abraham had with God change the outcome of what God told Abraham he was about to do? No. This was no negotiation. If it wasn't negotiation with Abraham, then what was it? What was it instead? Think about it. To me, it was a revelation of what was in Abraham's heart. That Abraham cared for the people. We do learn something about Abraham. Is Abraham the only player in the story? Who is the one who is the central, of central concern in the whole great great controversy? Who is the one the primary lies have been told about? So who else is the player in this? We learn about Abraham, but who else are we learning about? God. We're learning about God. That's who we're learning about. And what are we learning? Is God educating angels? Did we just read last week that angels long to look into this thing? And what are we learning about God in this conversation with Abraham? What are we learning? What is God revealing about himself? Is, is, well, do you remember when Abraham said... shouldn't the Lord of all the earth do what is right? Think about that. He's talking to God. Shouldn't you, Lord, shouldn't you do the right thing? How many Christians would talk to God that way today? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We're not questioning. We have faith. God said it, we don't question. It's a lack of faith to question God. If you have faith, you don't question. There's two people in Old Testament times that God called his friends. Two in scripture referred to as friends. What two? Moses and Abraham. 
Only to, David was a man after God's own heart, but he didn't use the word friend recorded in Scripture. Now, I think he probably was. But if you look at Scripture, two are actually recorded as my friends. I speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Now, those two people did something specific. In a face-to-face conversation with God, they both questioned him, challenged him. No, far be it from you, Lord, to destroy all of Israel. No, take my name out of the book. Abraham, far be it from you, Lord, to kill 40, to 50, 40, 30, 10. Both argued with him. Are we learning something about God's care? Does, does he tolerate questioning? Does he invite questioning? Does he want our question? Is he concerned that people understand what he's doing and why and what he's trying to achieve? Yes, there's an idea in much of religions of the world that God is God and he's sovereign and we have no right to question. I think God is demonstrating something completely different. Yes? That's the two examples which underlie the motto of this class, come and reason. God asked Abraham, by circumstances, come and reason with me. Find out about me. Moses did the same thing. And... When we put that together with the Isaiah text, come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, that we white like snow, they're red like crimson, that we made like wool. There's a connection that God is saying. Reasoning with God is the process of cleansing from sin. Because reasoning is a way to discover the truth, and the truth will set us free from the lies and restore us to trust, and we open the heart, and the Spirit transforms us. So without that reasoning with God, we remain in darkness. And so there's this religious theory that if you're really righteous and really trust God, you never reason, you never ask questions, you just believe it because it's sad. And it keeps you from actually coming to a knowledge of the truth. So thank you for that. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, the source of all truth, and that you are not afraid of questions. In fact, you invite questions. You invite us to reason and, and weigh things out and wrestle ideas out with you. We ask that your spirit will come and lighten our minds, remove the misunderstandings, and make us more effective in sharing the truth of your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.